if you have an initial discussion that students have where they're introducing each other and it's and very heavily social, think of that as an investment. An investment in, um, it's a time investment in the productive content-based interactions they're gonna have later on. Because if they feel safe and if they feel comfortable, then they're gonna have really rich content-based interactions throughout the whole lesson. Um, and the opposite is if we don't allow them that space to develop comfort and security with each other, then we might be treading water in a lot of these, in these, a lot of these discussions throughout the lesson. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are some of the affordances we can leverage to engage English learners in STEM classes in remote and hybrid learning environments? How might we make synchronous meetings more engaging to promote growth in content area knowledge, language skills, and collaborative work? What are some tools and strategies we can use to incorporate effective visuals, manipulatives, and other supports in remote environments? We discuss these questions and much more in our second conversation with Dr. Stephen Fleener. Stephen is a scientist turned educator who is inspired by the principles of sheltered instruction and growth mindset, particularly in the service of English learners. He has developed innovative approaches to working with English learners and economically disadvantaged students and has presented his ideas across various districts as well as regional conferences. You can read Stephen's full bio in our show notes. Before we get started with our conversation with Stephen, here's a quick reminder to please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Dr. Stephen Fleener. Dr. Stephen Fleener, thank you so much for joining us again on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much, Steve. It's really great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, you know, this is a this is a great time to chat with you because we talked about it was a little over a year ago, which is hard to believe. Things were quite different, um, and we brought you in to talk about how English learners are actually well positioned to do well in STEM courses. You had written an article about it. I read it, and I had to talk to you about it. It was a really well received um, episode. I think one because it talked about something that people uh, maybe not really feel the same way about, and two because it was really asset based. Um, now things have changed. So like my first question generally is, and we'll get into the specifics later is, I mean, does that still apply in these remote settings that we're uh, finding ourselves in? Are English learners still um, well positioned to do well in STEM courses? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for mentioning that, um, that the, the, the episode was very uh, asset-based and asset-focused because there definitely still are um, a whole lot of assets that English learners have uh, when we're thinking about English learners learning at home, there's a lot of assets that they have at their disposal at home. What it means um, more, uh, more strongly than ever is that the lessons that we are delivering to deliver that high quality STEM instruction, we really need to be um, laser focused on making sure we're making those lessons um, accessible and language rich and uh, really focusing on uh, linguistic needs of learners with, with academic language. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to dive into the academic language piece a little bit more specifically later, but thanks for kind of setting us up. Um, certainly one of the major concerns on the mind of everyone, educators, parents, students alike, um, is equitable access to instruction and, and services. We're focusing a lot on that on our 
Equity and Action Program, our In This Together docuseries. Um, and you and I have talked about this in the context of kind of providing those pathways for English learners into STEM careers, because we're not just talking about school here, we're talking about the future um, of, of these students and the, and the opportunities that they have. So what do you think some of the challenges and affordances are given this shift to mostly remote, some hybrid, a little bit of in-person instruction? Yeah, well, in March, when, when virtually every school um, shut down, we were all hit in the face, essentially, with, uh, with the stark reality that there is a, um, a real dramatic lack of ac access, both um, in terms of technology as well as in terms of um, quiet space for a lot of our learners. English learners are hit disproportionately by that because, uh, as we know, a lot of our English learners live in poverty. And um, uh, I, like, like I'm sure most people in education, were really, really, really concerned about that. That's still a major concern. That's still a major challenge. But I've been really uh, kind of excited and intrigued to see over the past few months the way that school districts and cities have responded to that lack of access. In doing so, what they've done is they've really uh, innovated in a lot of exciting ways. I know a lot of laptops and iPads and uh, computers have been distributed. I know a lot of hotspots have been distributed. I know that school districts have parked buses in neighborhoods that, that generate Wi-Fi and even here in San Antonio, um, they are uh, tapping into the communication systems within the streetlights to project school districts' uh, networks. So I almost want to say that the um, lack of technology access that was present in 2019 um, has become an affordance in the way that it's become an impetus for cities and school districts to really innovate and uh, deliver that access. I'm excited to say that in the year 2020, there is a systematic big push to get uh, families internet access at home. So, so that's something that um, is, is really inspiring to me. There is definitely an affordance for English learners in particular to um, when they're learning at home to be able to uh, access the content and process the content on their own time and, and in their own terms. So we talk a lot about it, especially with, um, with beginner or intermediate newcomers, uh, English learners who are, who are just beginning to acquire the English language. We talk a lot about uh, the need for processing time. That processing time is a great instructional strategy However, when the students are learning at home, they're able to utilize as much processing time as they need. So I definitely see that as, as an affordance that, um, that re remote or in-home learning provides. Yeah, and thanks for bringing up the infrastructure piece too, because that's one thing that has been extremely important. I had no, I'm, I'm gonna have to research the idea with the, that you mentioned about the streetlights. I mean, that sounds really oh, cool. exciting. Mm -hmm. I am not, uh, you know, techno technologically savvy enough to understand how that works, but what a great <laughs> idea if you can make that happen. You know, you, you also mentioned something that's really simple, but that I haven't heard a lot of people mention, and that's quiet space. Um, you know, that's so important, to, for, especially for some people. I mean, for me, I was just having this conversation yesterday with one of my family members. I'm like, I'm going to get you headphones so that you can watch that thing that you're watching so that I can read because I cannot read this thing, even with there's just a little sound. And I know there's a lot of people like me, and I certainly am not struggling with, with language issues. So I think that's crucially important. And I have seen, you know, some things where, 
teachers are teaching from school, even though their their students are remote and they're allowed to bring their their children in with them so that they can have that quiet space. So those things are happening. Um, it's really nice to hear about uh, a lot of the affordances that you mentioned um, as well. Uh, but yeah, that idea of quiet space is really intriguing to me. Um, so you talked about processing time, which is kind of like a forced thing. You know, a teacher doesn't even necessarily have the ability to not give students processing time just because of the nature of synchronous versus asynchronous learning. But what about things like manipulatives? Um, you know, in science courses, we, we, we in STEM courses, that's crucially important. Um, and, and with those manipulatives and sort of sharing them comes, I think, relationship building among students and teachers in the context of the content that they're working with. So um, how do we bring those in remotely? Really, really good question. There, uh, the manipulatives are, have always been really powerful in STEM courses. And um, there are definitely uh, technology-based ways to do this, um, both in the asynchronous and the synchronous environment. And the most kind of basic example, having a, um, and especially in a synchronous lesson, uh, having a, um, a stack of PowerPoint slides or Google slides or, um, or whatever kind of platform you want, that has a that has a board with little tokens on it, and the students are able to move the tokens. Um, maybe they are uh, doing something like a, a card sort, or maybe they're um, or maybe they're making connections. And those text boxes or images, uh, students can drag and drop them as long as the as long as the um, the file is shared with them. So that can be a really powerful way to have manipulatives. It can also be a really powerful way. Um, and I think we'll probably talk about this later on, but it can be a really powerful way to have an anchor for group discussions. Um, when students are discussing with each other to have something that they're doing together. That was very much true in the um, in-person environment, uh, but having that ability to do that online using just text boxes and images on, on a Google slide or Microsoft PowerPoint slide um, is, is really, really powerful. And you also mentioned relationships which uh, we all know, we knew in 2019, we know it very well right now, that that is, um, if not, if not um, uh, the most important thing, then definitely one of the most important things yep. in, in pedagogy generally. And um, what I, I really encourage teachers to do is to maintain that focus on building relationships. If we have students coming to synchronous lessons, that's a really simple thing to do. Um, one of the simple and easy ways to do that is just to acknowledge students as they're coming in or, you know, just like we would in person, you know, comments on uh, the soccer team that's displayed on the student's shirt or, um, or uh, uh, make some kind of acknowledgement of a student. But also what's really key um, is the relationship building between students because what we definitely don't have at our, at our uh, luxury and disposal when we're talking about remote learning, is we don't have all of these informal social opportunities that students had uh, between halls, the beginning of class, in lunchroom, uh, that, that they had so easily in the in-person environment. So it's really important that when we're structuring our lessons, we structure in that, um, that kind of social time, that's what I like to call productive social time, so one easy way to do that is to um, have students engage in, in uh, a group discussion, small group, two, two to four students, 
and they'll be engaging with that group throughout the lesson. But what um, what we can uh, design into the lesson is the first discussion that they have is going to be some introduction piece. Maybe it's going to be just a hi, I'm Steven. And one thing I remember about yesterday's lesson was or something like that, something that that builds in um, their uh, interaction with each other. So they become comfortable with each other because uh, fostering that relationship is, is really key. Um, that's in the synchronous environment and the asynchronous environment. Um, having structured group work, like if a student uh, is going to be assigned a, a, a project or an assignment, then there can be specific roles that different group members work on together and they have to interact in order to um, complete that project. That, that can be really, really powerful just to have that productive social interaction. Yeah, and it seems like it requires, and, and I'll start by saying that I, relationship building has been definitely put in the spotlight. I mean, in every sort of forum that I'm chatting with people, whether it's on this podcast or in work I'm doing with the Harvard Graduate School of Education right now, or in, uh, you know, conversations that I'm having on the docuseries that I'm working on, everybody talks first about relationship building, both with students and with families. And while that has always been important and always has been something that has been mentioned, it is now absolutely 100% in the forefront. And to hear you talk about it in the context of STEM courses, which I think sort of get a bad rap in terms of they focus on content first, which clearly that's not the case with you. It's just really nice to hear that that's key. But it really requires a fair amount of trust in the students and sort of letting go a little bit that, okay, we're going to have this, you called it um, productive social time. And I mean, I think productive, and correct me if I'm wrong, if, if you have a different opinion, but that productive social time can be sort of what would, would generally happen in the lunchroom or in the hallways where students are just kind of getting, getting to know each other. Um, mm -hmm. So I love it that you mentioned that, but you have to be really intentional about creating that, which may seem counterproductive to sort of a traditionally trained teacher. Um, and even anybody, you're just so used to a certain thing. You have so much muscle memory built in that you really have to unlearn. I mean, so much of it is like about this unlearning piece. Um, and then the next thing that, that you mentioned, you're talking about the slot, you know, how you could create manipulatives. That was a large question with a couple of different things in it. So I'm trying to break it down, but the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, you, you mentioned two tools that everybody sort of knows about PowerPoint and Google slides. You don't need some special new shiny object to do this. You can do it with exactly. things that people generally already know how to, how to use. So that's great that you mentioned that any reaction to either of those things before we move forward. Cause that was a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for mentioning the um, reluctance some teachers might feel or, or the struggle that some people might have with the idea of giving up control and especially sacrificing content-focused time to allow this time for, um, for this kind of social interaction. What I would really encourage anyone who is, who is embarking on, on a kind of a mind shift of balancing social interaction with uh, heavily content-focused interaction what, I, what I'd really encourage um, someone to think about is think about if you have an initial discussion that students have where they're introducing each other and it's, and it's very heavily social, think of that as an investment, an investment in, um, it's a time investment in the productive content-based interactions they're gonna have later on. Because if they feel safe and if they feel comfortable, then they're gonna have really rich content-based interactions throughout the whole lesson um, and the opposite is if we don't allow them that space to develop comfort and security with each other, 
then we might be treading water in a lot of these in these a lot of these discussions throughout the lesson. Yeah, I think looking at it as an investment is a great way to look at it and just being really intentional and deliberate about it and knowing yourself if you're one of those people. And there are many and many of them are great teachers, right? Because they rely on that hallway time where students are building relationships. I you know, taught high school and at the high school level, you know, you do have to do relationship building activities, I think, at the beginning of the year. And, they, and it is always helpful, but there's a lot of it that's already baked in, um, you know, for a lot of students. So let's shift gears a little bit, you know, as we sort of think about, we build these relationships, then we get these students into these synchronous and asynchronous environments. In my experience, both as a parent uh, and somebody sort of looking into what teachers were doing synchronously, you know, these idea of best practices for synchronous um, Zoom lessons or whatever they were, um, it was just difficult to find them, right? And many people were trying to sort of mimic what they were doing in the classroom on these synchronous, uh, you know, class sessions. That was just a Band-Aid. People were struggling. They were trying to figure out what to do. I guess, I guess like the, the core of my question is how do we make these synchronous meetings more interactive and really, I mean, less boring? I don't know how else to, to say it, you know, as we start the school year. Yeah, really, really great question. Um, uh, you know, Larry Filasso recently released a online chapter that is ahead of his book that he's going to publish with, uh, with, with Katie Holsnepsky, and, and the chapter is about best practices for online instruction. There's a lot of really great things in there. One of the things that really struck out to me was this idea that um, every two to three minutes, make sure the students are doing something and um, interacting in some way. There was some, uh, there was some dogma um, for, for a while that talked about for every year of a student's life, they have that many minutes in attention span before they stop doing anything. Um, I've always really struggled with that because in practice, uh, a 14-year-old uh, a in eighth grade uh, I, I don't think really has 14 minutes of attention span that they can just sit there listening. I would agree. I, know, I don't, um, I don't, and I'm way older than that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I really like that idea of, of every two to three minutes, the interaction itself can be really simple and it can be, um, and, uh, and, and even in its simplicity can be really powerful. So imagine, for example, the use of total response signals, total response signals, are very great tools for checking for understanding. But they're really great tools for building engagement. Imagine if um, every two to three minutes of a teacher talking, the teacher stopped and said, uh, okay, show me on your fingers, one through five, rate your understanding of what I just said, or thumbs up if you agree with what I just said, or thumbs down if you disagree. Um, that's something that requires students to make a physical movement that uh, and, and in doing so is, is, na is naturally very engaging or even as simple as, this is a big vocabulary word I just came across. Um, I just came across the word resistor. Everyone say that word out loud, resistor. You know, these are really simple things that students can do, and in doing so, it really builds engagement. Um, and of course, in a synchronous lesson, I, I really highly encourage, um, most, almost all platforms uh, um, are set up for this now, but I really, really highly encourage teachers to pre-plan several um, uh, breakout sessions where students are discussing in small groups. Um, and and we'll, we'll probably talk about that um, 
later on, but, but the ability for students to interact with each other and for them to do something physical and for them to say something out loud every two to three minutes, I think is, needs to be a, needs to be a, a golden standard for synchronous uh, lessons. Yeah, that brings me back to the to the idea of trust, um, and and I think something that somebody else is Lynn Markalone, who's the director of uh, EL programs and services in Prince William County in Virginia. She said the other day to me, she said we have to ditch perfection, you know, um, which I think is 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 it's not easy for many many teachers. But that idea of and you know letting students speak in these in these small groups, knowing that you don't necessarily have all the control, uh, you know, but you're gonna uh-huh. you're gonna uh, jump into them from time to time. Um, and then two to three minutes, boy, like some people are listening probably and thinking that's how am I going to do that? But I think it really makes a lot of sense. And if it sounds extreme and crazy to you, I would encourage you to try it and then see how it goes, you know, and, and, and then, you know, ask your students at some point, get some feedback on it and see how, how it's, uh, how it's going for them. Um, and this brings us to asynchronous, which obviously is a huge piece of this as well. Um, first of all, you know, what role do you think they should play um, and how should educators design and deploy them so that they're effective for all students, but specifically for, you know, for this conversation um, for English learners. And the idea is if it's good for English learners, it should be good for everybody, but I'll defer to you about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very interesting. Asynchronous. Um, it's, it's very interesting that you're, you're mentioning trust uh, because we require a lot of trust in, in asynchronous learning as well. Um, and, uh, what I, and just quickly going back to what you're talking about, trust within the synchronous learning, um, and worrying about students going off on tangents or, or not being very productive in their small group. I'm a lot, personally, I'm a lot more worried about the wandering and the tangents and the, uh, the sense of being lost that students aren't expressing when they're just pretending to listen to a lecture. Um, so I, I really like the idea of, uh, letting them interact as a way to explore what it is that, that they're struggling with. That's a great point. Part, yeah. That, that you just, how many, I'm sorry, but how many scenes, you know, in movies have you seen or not even movies in real life? Like as you've walked into a classroom and you just look at the students and you know that just, they're just not. So I guess just think of that when you think to every two to three minutes is crazy. Just think of a lecture in person and think you're trying to lecture online with the millions of distractions that are around students at all times. I, sorry, couldn't resist. Keep, carry on. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And you know, it, it's, it, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, age is not really a variable. Um, when I'm sitting in Zoom meetings or, or long meetings and I'm not doing something for two or three minutes, let alone 15 to 60 minutes, I am very distracted. I want to fidget. I want to look at other things. Um, my email, you know, gets very well checked in those meetings. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so, so definitely, um, it, we have to really make deliberate efforts to, to make sure we're engaging our students. With the asynchronous environment, uh, it can be really tempting um, to have an asynchronous assignment that is essentially the completion of a worksheet where there's a series of questions and the students are responding to those questions and then uploading their responses. And I really caution about that because um, because what we know from the research and what we know intuitively in lessons is that uh, interaction between students is really key for learning. And so in the asynchronous environment, 
we can foster really great interaction in a lot of different ways. In, in the uh, example I just mentioned of having, let's say it's a 10 question worksheet, instead of assigning the students individually um, a 10 question worksheet, what I really recommend is, is uh, making it so that students are paired up and um, student A has to answer some of those questions, student B has to answer some of those questions, and student A and B uh, both have to answer um, several of those questions together. And in order to answer that question, they have to, they have to have some kind of discussion. It can be on their own time. It can be at midnight if that's when they like to operate. Um, uh, but what they're doing is they're having a conversation to be able to um, collaborate on producing an answer to that question. Uh, and even better if that's something that can be recorded and uploaded, like on Flipgrid, where the teacher can see student A posts an answer, student B responds with a sentence stem. I agree with student B because, or I would add to, to student A's response or something like that. Um, uh, that can be really powerful. With uh, asynchronous learning, there's some affordances that uh, I think are really exciting. I just talked about the idea of a worksheet, but I think that we have some really great opportunities to have some really out of the box thinking with projects that the students are working on. Project-based learning or PBL has been talked about for years, um, but now we have the time and the space to, to really be trying these out. And, um, and I really encourage educators to, to put that into practice, um, especially some kind of like solving a problem issue. We need to build a colony on Mars. How are we going to do it? Uh, and, but I really highly encourage in that project to have um, specific places where students are going to be interacting and sharing their, that interaction online on Padlet or Flipgrid or something like that. Yeah, and those things serve as checkpoints as well for both the teacher and the student. Exactly. I mean, I love it. So much of this is, is it just, it just, it, I love hearing things that sort of go against the grain and that just go against that traditional, get a worksheet, you do it yourself. If other people are involved, it's kind of cheating. Like, we need to get away from that. And this is forcing us to get away from that. Um, you know, and I would imagine that there are a lot of students who are probably already doing this on their own when they get, which they've always done, but now they mm -hmm. have the space and the time to do it more. And I just hope that, uh, you know, teachers aren't looking at that as, uh, as some form of cheating. You know, uh, I, I think that's still something that we have to, we have to discuss. I mean, it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room um, in many ways. I, I just feel like if there, if there was ever an opportunity for us to think of things differently and for uh, us to think of education as any other workplace or environment where collaboration is constant, and for English learners in particular, how that collaboration is so crucial for their language development. If there's any time to think about those things, it's really now. I mean, it's really an exciting time. I've said before, you know, I, I, I love what I do and I love speaking with people like you, but there's a big part of me that, that just wishes I was in the classroom now or, or wherever, yeah. teaching from wherever I was teaching to be uh -huh. a part of this because it's what I always wanted as a teacher. Mm -hmm. It's what I always looked for. And now in this kind of ugly and horrible way, um, it, it's, it's happening and I just hope it, it sticks around. Yeah, it's, I, I feel a little bit controversial for saying this, but, um, but uh, the longer this pandemic stretches on, the more we're forced to confront the fact that we are long overdue for a change in the way we do school. Um, and and I, I'm, I, I'm really excited about the different kinds of changes. And I think it really does go back to what you're talking about before about control, that in the, in the kind of traditional model of, of 
education, we as educators, we have we, we, we maintain this enormous amount of control where we're giving this information to the students and we are checking the students individually that the students can repeat the information back to us. But while that's great for control, it's terrible for learning and we all know that. And instead, I think that the mind shift we need to have is um, uh, our role as educators is not to exert control and maintain control. Our role of educators is to promote um, a positive learning environment. And if that learning environment happens through kids talking, then just stop calling it cheating and start calling it collaborating. And, and you'll see that the kids are learning very well. Yeah. So much of it comes down to leadership as well, which is a conversation for another mm -hmm. time. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. Let's talk a little bit more about sort of specific strategies. And one thing that you talked about last time that I know you feel very strongly about is using visuals effectively. And we talked in that last episode about how using visuals isn't necessarily what people think it is. There's, there's sort of more to it. Um, you walk through lots of strategies that go beyond just sort of putting it up. Um, I don't think you need to recap all of that, although maybe a quick summary might be, might be worthwhile for those who didn't listen to that episode. But my, my big question is, how do you think they might work predictably? My question is in, in, you know, in, in remote and hybrid learning environments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I'll, I'll recap it a little bit because I don't remember what I said anyway, so <laughs> to remind myself. Um, you know, the general idea is that a, a, a visual on the wall or a visual on the side of a PowerPoint presentation or um, on the landing page of whatever your um, your uh, uh, whatever your uh, canvas or whatever your your um, program is that you're using, uh, that visual, in my opinion, is effectively pointless if there's not any kind of structured interaction with with um, the students between the students and that visual. So what I really highly recommend is displaying a visual and having that be an anchor of critical thinking and discussion about the visual. So maybe we ask questions to the students um, that say something like, what do you observe in this visual? Or maybe we ask questions about um, what they can infer is the meaning of uh, the different words depicted in the visual, for example. Uh, I like to call um, an ideal visual to use for these kinds of thinking and discussion opportunities. I call that a structured visual. And the idea is that um, there are arrows and uh, labeled vocabulary words and symbols that help students infer meaning about what a word means and about what is involved in the process of that word. And the example that, that I give all the time, there's lots of great examples, is um, the example I give all the time is, is photosynthesis. Instead of having a picture of a leaf, uh, have a picture of the sun and a leaf and an arrow going from the sun to the leaf and then maybe CO2 and an oxygen, an oxygen entering and leaving the leaf or something like that. Um, so uh, using these visuals as a, um, as a, uh, as essentially as an anchor for students to think and discuss. In the online environment, what we can do is uh, either synchronously or asynchronously, we can present the visuals to the students and then we can ask them uh, a guiding question and we structure those conversations. So let's say it's synchronous and they're going to a breakout room. They're gonna go into a breakout room. They're gonna be looking at this visual. And the idea is that um, each student is going to be looking at the visual and uh, is gonna be saying um, something specific that relates to the question. So maybe the visual depicts the Doppler effect. And the question is what's one thing you notice about the Doppler effect? then uh, students go through in their groups and they all share one thing I noticed about the Doppler effect is, 
they're all looking at the visual, so they're all getting different pieces of information out of it. And uh, collectively, as a group, they're coming up with a lot of really, really great ideas. Um, of course, an essential component to structuring these kinds of conversations is um, having some kind of uh, uh, randomization where we're, we're calling on students randomly afterwards. I like to call on two or, or even more students to get a diverse range of responses. Um, and, and really what that does is uh, it's an accountability tool, sure, but also what it does is more importantly, it invites a diverse group of students to the class conversation that otherwise wouldn't participate if you just said hands up if you know the answer um, or shout out the answer randomly if you know the answer. Um, so, uh, so what I see is um, in the online environment, as much as in the in-person environment, is using a, a, a really highly structured visual that has a lot of information in it, using that as an anchor for structured conversations is really powerful at, um, at engaging students in deep thinking and supporting English learners and uh, doing school generally. Yeah, the only thing that I'll comment on and follow up on with that, I think it's great. I, I won't try to add anything onto what you said about uh, using visuals because I think you're very thorough. But the idea of... Um, of randomization and calling on students can be a touchy subject um, because we certainly don't want to put students on the spot. We don't want to destroy any confidence that they have. Um, but having that visual um, and asking questions that can be answered in a variety of different ways will do the opposite. It will boost confidence of students, particularly if that relationship building piece has been in place before. Um, so I think that it all sort of connects together. So what I encourage educators to do is to kind of have a, um, uh, a thought experiment, if you will. Think about a lesson, think about a question you're gonna ask, and imagine you calling on a student, and um, imagine you calling on maybe the uh, least confident student in the class, and then you know you see the spotlight on that student, you see the, the nervous beads on, on his or her face, and, and you think to yourself, oh gosh, I shouldn't have called on that student um, without doing X. I should have given that student X first. And whatever that is, um, then let's make sure we plan that into the lesson. Maybe that's uh, providing the visual. Maybe it's providing extra think time about the visual. Maybe it's providing a sentence sim or discussion opportunity with his or her partner, or maybe it's all of the above. Um, and so that's kind of what I really like about randomization is we don't want to put students on the spot. We don't want to uh, we want to we want to only ever build up their confidence and never the opposite. So when we are going to randomize, it puts a burden on our shoulders as educators to make sure we are doing everything we can to to make everyone prepared to answer the question. So it's a tool uh, that is just as powerful for developing us as educators as it is for empowering our students. Yeah, and you just described I think a lesson in empathy understand, you know, being able to empathize with your students by thinking about that student, by thinking about what you're going to say beforehand. And over time, at least in my experience, you know, you have to really be deliberate about that at the beginning, but over time it starts to become pretty natural, right? Exactly. So I still want people to think if you're a new teacher or you're nervous about this, that this is something that you have to do every single time. But at the beginning, at that, that we have to build that in. I mean, this is all new for us now. Um, and, uh, and I think, again, this is an opportunity where sort of a lot of people have said, I feel like a new teacher again. They've been teaching for 20 years. Yeah. There's so many like great opportunities in that. And it, it breeds nervousness and anxiety, but also a lot of excitement. So 
yeah, absolutely. Things worth mentioning. So I just, you know, I'm going to do something that I, that I sometimes steer clear of, but I think, it, I think a lot of people are, if they're listening, they're thinking, okay, what are a couple tools that I can use to do this? So um, I can't stand long lists of tools that are sent to people without any explanation, but you've obviously been doing this for a while. I'd love to hear maybe like three tools or even strategies. You've mentioned some before. Um, that we can use to address some of the things that we've discussed today? Definitely. Um, so if you're listening and you're hearing me describe the different things you can do to help students get prepared to answer a question out loud um, who, who's been randomly called on, uh, it might help to have a name to the strategy. And that name is uh, QSSA or QSSSA. Um, it's... Uh, you, you don't really have to have this thought experiment and, and create this whole list of things if you just follow this process. And if you're completely unfamiliar with this process, um, there are a whole lot of, uh, of books that are available, particularly from the Scientist group where I'm from. Um, but I, I encourage you to just go on YouTube and to search my name, Stephen Fleener, and the acronym QSSSA. And what you'll find is you'll find a video that um, where, where I'm explaining uh, and showing how to set up a structured conversation in breakout rooms on Zoom, um, but also how to structure that conversation using the QSSSA strategy. Um, and uh, I, again, it, it, if you're unfamiliar with breakout rooms, it's very easy and intuitive to use in Zoom, but now it's available in, in virtually all of these um, uh, synchronous meeting platforms. So, uh, so, so that's something I really highly encourage anyone listening to check out uh, that video. It's about 11 minutes. And the other tools that I really recommend are, um, are uh, a Flipgrid and Padlet, just as ways for students to share uh, things as a class-wide um, uh, sharing activity. This could be something that is uh, you're doing in the synchronous environment or something that you're doing in the asynchronous environment. Flipgrid is particularly user-friendly for adding videos and replying to those videos. Um, and if you're not familiar with Flipgrid, what I love about it is you can restrict the video length time to anywhere from 30 seconds to um, uh, 10 minutes and 90 seconds is the default. And so it really gets kids to really focus on, um, on uh, those videos, um, exactly what they're needing to say in, in their responses. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is, uh, uh, is again, again, you've probably, you, just talking to me, you've probably gotten the sense that I'm kind of a um, let's not be fancy, bare bones uh, kind of guy when it comes to technology. Um, those two platforms are really powerful, but simply having a, uh, a shared document that students are interacting with uh, on that shared document, whether it's a Google Doc or, or a uh, uh, PowerPoint slide that students are able to um, work off. Um, those are all things that I'd really, really highly recommend. Yeah, and I, I'm familiar with all of them, and I can, you know, state that they are all very, very simple. Um, you know, Padlet, Flipgrid, great for, like you said, you know, whole class kind of communication tools. Um, QSSA, there's a lot of information about there. One of the episodes we also did on this podcast was with your colleague, John Seidlitz, about, it was specifically geared toward QSSA. I think it's probably still applicable. This was pre-COVID. Um, uh, and then, like you said, the YouTube video, which we'll link to as well. I think that's crucial for people to actually see something. And you also mentioned the breakout rooms that are now available in all of them. I, I You know, and 
people are so scared of using those breakout rooms for a variety mm-hmm. of different ways. And I think at first, like they weren't great and now they've gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to, to just, just take a stab at that. And if you're, if you're um, doing breakout rooms for the first time and you're really nervous about it, what I really highly encourage you to do is just to have the students go into the breakout rooms for just 60 seconds and just allow that 60 seconds to pass them to come back together. You to realize there are no metaphorical fires burning. Um, and then as your comfort zone expands, then you can expand that length of time that they're discussing. Yeah. And you know what, like, that's a great opportunity to just, I, I think it's so important that we sort of now, especially we have this great opportunity to kind of like tinker with things together. Just say you, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying to students, I just want to make sure this works. Take 60 seconds, yeah. talk about whatever you want and we're going to make sure yeah. it works and then come back and say, did that work? Great. It worked. And then slowly but surely you're adding sort of more, um, content-based or more heavy sort of, uh, items into those breakout groups. Yeah, and I think the, the same with the same with any tool, really, like one of the things that I started doing that was really powerful. And I think that I think that, like I've said before, but like, if somebody came in and observed my class when I was doing this, I think probably half of the people would be like, that was a great idea. And half would be like, what are you doing? Um, I, I like the, the first half better. But what I would do is just I would say, we're going to use this new tool today you know, take three minutes and just do whatever you want, play with it, figure it out. And, and, and let's talk about it. this work, how'd it go. That, and you mentioned investments earlier. That's just an investment, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. You don't have to have all the answers, you know? Uh, and we're going to learn a lot from students by, by them playing with that, particularly if they're language learners and they have, they have unique challenges and maybe we're not trained to be, you know, teachers of language learners. I mean, that's going to be really important. Absolutely. Okay. So as we wrap up here, aside from sort of the information that you just put out in this episode, and I always say like this podcast is designed to kind of give people inspiration, but it's not, I totally understand that you're not going to take everything that you heard and use it tomorrow. So I want to make sure that people have um, another sort of opportunity to learn more about it. So what, what should people be reading, listening to, watching or whatever to kind of learn more and put into action the things that we talked about today? Yeah. So, um, uh, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd recommend you check out. Um, there's a lot of really uh, great um, people on Twitter that are that are excellent to follow. Um, you can follow me, and and I retweet a lot of the the great things that people are posting on Twitter. Um, Blair Floss is posting a lot of great things. Uh, um, Tan Hyun and uh, Carol Salvin and Valentina Gonzalez are all posting some really great things. Of course, Steve, you're also posting some really great things. Um, so Twitter is is a really really valuable resource. Uh, to check out. Um, I'd also recommend uh, um, if you're a science teacher to check out uh, a new project that I've developed. Uh, we've um, been talking about visuals here and I've created this website called the visual non-glossary www.thevisualnonglossary.com and uh, I have a lot of these structured visuals that I've described um, designed for specific vocabulary words as well as uh, questions and sentence stems aligned um, to those, uh, to, to those visuals. So I really highly encourage you, uh, to check that out. Um, but, but again, um, uh, Twitter is uh, a really great resource for just getting ideas. Um, uh, you follow a few people and, and the ideas are flooding in. Yeah. You mentioned five people, including yourself that I follow and that I, you know, you mentioned me, but really all I do is, uh, is steal the ideas from or curate. I prefer the word curate, not steal. That's a good one. <laughs> the ideas from other people and, and, and amplify them. Um, but they're, you know, they're great. Uh, Larry Flazotan and Carolyn and Valentina and yourself. 
Um, really looking forward to digging into your new project, which is exciting that we're doing this podcast right around the time that you're actually uh, launching it. Um, yeah, as, aside from that, is there any other place that people can go to sort of learn more about the work that you're doing or get in touch? Um, sure, yeah. Uh, 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 follow me on Twitter. Go to silenceeducation.com. And um, particularly, I encourage you to check out our webinar series. Uh, that's one of the links on the website. Um, basically, everyone in our group has done a webinar. I, um, I have done a webinar that's, uh, that's very relevant to the conversation we're just having. The web webinar is about fostering interaction, both in a synchronous environment using breakout rooms, but also using QSSA to structure even asynchronous interactions. So I encourage you to check that one out. Um, and I think right about the time of the airing of this podcast, there will be another webinar that I'm recording about using structured visuals and um, having students interact, uh, particularly using this, this new um, uh, resource I've developed, the visual non-glossary. Uh, so both of those will be on the Sideless Education website. Great. And I can say, you know, Sideless is doing, uh, SS Education is doing great work with webinars and the blogs that you all are putting out are awesome. And we're at Elevation excited to partner with you on a lot of different things, including these, these projects. So this is a little bit more um, informal. Um, so happy to, uh, to sort of promote some of those things. And we'll link to all of those on the show notes so that you can find them. Um, and with that, uh, Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on again and chatting with us. Always really inspirational to hear what you're doing. Um, I think, I think the only issue is that we agree on too many things. Maybe there should be a, a little bit more tension, but, uh, but um, I, I just, uh, you know, it's really inspiring. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, it's such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks. thanks for listening to highest aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.